Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church. I just want to welcome everyone again uh, to our service this morning. I'm glad that you are able to join and uh, those who have joined on live stream, very good morning to you. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Let me give you the big picture first as we dive into this passage again. We looked at last time from Nehemiah chapters 1 to 7, we looked at the restoration of the wall of Jerusalem. And as we move to the second part of Nehemiah, from chapters 8 to 13, now we are looking at the restoration of the people of Judah. Last time we looked at chapter 8, it was transitioning from the restoration of the wall to the spiritual restoration of the people. We learned four lessons, four spiritual restorations. We learned that we must read God's Word. We must listen to God's Word. We must be taught God's Word, and we must respond to God's Word. And there were about five responses that we looked at. Number one, we looked at a godly repentance, an inner joy to do good work, and to be obedient to His commands, and which will definitely lead us to worship. So what we saw, we saw the power of the Word of God in a believer's spiritual revival, when they hear the Word of God, when they give heed to the Word of God, and when they are taught the Word of God, they respond to the Word of God. The primary response, church, was, is godly repentance, is confession. And that's what we are going to see in chapter 9. Now, in chapter 9, we see that the people celebrated the Feast of Booths. It was actually a week-long celebration, a festival, where the Jews would live in tents for a week, remembering their ancestors who also lived in tents between Egypt and the Promised Land. This is an act of worship. It is done diligently and intentionally. Now, the Jews celebrated this Feast of Booths is for three reasons. One is to look back and thank God for His faithfulness in the past. Second, to look around at His blessings in the present. And third is to look ahead, remembering that they were not to put their trust in the material, in the, wall, in the walls and in the temporal, but in the Lord who has prepared the city for them. So in chapter 9, as we look at this, the confession takes four forms. We're going to look at that today, at least two of them. Number one is remember, and this is thanking God for His faithfulness in the past. Number two is to recognize who their God has been to their ancestors and to them. And then to reflect on how their ancestors responded to this God And lastly, to see how they were going to respond to this God. 
So today as we dive into chapter 9, our focus is on looking back, how they remembered and how they recognized this God. So as we read verses 1 to 5, the very first lesson, and we're going to dive into that in a moment, is we learn that as believers, periodically, we should take time to intentionally and purposefully remember our God. Remember our past. One of my favorite choruses growing up is this. I'm not going to sing, but this is my chorus. When I think of the goodness of Jesus, when I think of what he has done for me, my soul crieth out, hallelujah, praise God for saving me. Church, yesterday we had our men's group meeting. And we are going through 2 Timothy chapter 3. We are looking at a few verses. And in verse number 13, Paul is giving a warning to Timothy as to how the last days are going to look like. And that's, we are in the last days. And Paul says in verse 13 of chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Church, I want to tell you, and that's the environment that we are in today. Evil men and imposters are growing worse and worse and deceiving, and we are being deceived. And then Paul gives this admonition or to Paul, Timothy. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That means that you and I, we want to live godly life. We are going to... Pers- we are going to experience, encounter persecution. So in order for us to navigate through this period of time, here's a valuable lesson that we are learning in chapter 9. So I want us to stay focused on this chapter 9. It's a pretty lengthy passage. It's 38 verses. We're going to only look at the first 25 verses. So let us understand the context here. It's still the first month of the year which would be our September to October period. Now, day one of the month was dedicated to celebrating the new year, and it was called the Feast of Trumpets. Day 10 was the Day of Atonement. And days 15 to 22 was the Feast of Booths that we just saw in this passage. Now, in chapter 9, as we begin chapter 9, we are in day 24. So they just had a joyous festival, but as we dive into chapter 9, we learn that all these feasting has suddenly turned into fasting. So let's dive into verse number 1 on chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. They were wearing sackcloth, it symbolizes mourning and humility. Church sackcloth was a poorly, poor quality material, a garment of goat hair. And not only that, we see that they were throwing dust over their heads. This was a ritual symbolizing repentance. If you recall, the Lord Jesus says, in, we find in Matthew chapter 11, For if the mighty works which are done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
So it means that this is symbolizes, this, this act of these children of Israel symbolizes repentance. The dirt was a way of exposing and admitting their soiled hearts before God and before others. It's an interesting observation because back in chapter 8, verse number 9, we see that on day 1 itself, people were weeping over their sin. We looked at when we went through chapter 8. Now, after the Feast of Booths, we see that they are again grieving over their sin. Church, this tells us something. When our God gets a hold of us, of His people, it is not always going to be neat and orderly. It's going to be rather messy because God does not fit in our nice boxes. We cannot put Him in a box and ask God to behave this way and expect God to behave that way. So here in this chapter, we see we have a special movement of God among His peoples and sometimes that messes up everything. Church, I very well remember during my ordination, even during the time of my baptism, I remember crying uncontrollably. I could not control my tears. When the Spirit moved, it revealed your unworthiness. Now let's move on to chapter, verse number 2. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. But see how intentional they are here as you look at this verse. They are not only wearing the appropriate attire, the sackcloth and, the, and dust over their heads, but they are setting apart time here to come together in solidarity with their ancestors. Check the reason they separated from all non-Jews was because they were going to confess the sins of their own people. Let's move on to verse number three. And they stood up in their place. And see what they did next. And read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord, their God. So they read for a while, and you can see they stood up. Why? Out of reverence for the Word of God. And they confessed, and they worshipped. Now, I want you to notice again the connection between the reading of the Word of God and the conviction of sin. Because the Word is a mirror. It's a mirror that shows you how dirty you are. And we see that even in the book of James, isn't it? It says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. The word convicts you. That's why Paul, David cries out, you, you, your word I have cherished in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let's move on to verses 4 and 5. Then Joshua, I'm not going to read all the names, Joshua and others stood on the stairs of the Levites and see what they were doing. They cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And verse number 5, and the Levites and the others said, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. 
Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Church, what do you see here in, this, in these two verses? What we are seeing here is the leaders take the lead in demonstrating humility, unity, confession, and praise. They are leading the congregation in this confession. The leaders take the lead here. It's a great word for the servant team of this church. For every leader, we must take the lead in these things and we must lead by example. That's what you're seeing here. What we see in verses 1 to 5 is that these children of Israel who were brought out of their bondage, they came to this promised land again, they took time to remember. In verse 8, we, we focused on the God's word to them, and, and now the people, they are responding with their words to Him, the Lord. Words of genuine sorrow, that's what they're seeing here. Why sorrow? It's about their sins and of, and of grateful remembrance of God's grace, what God has done in their lives. You know, after the Feast of Booths, they should have gone back. They should have gone back and started their normal routine. But because they were moved by the word, the Bible says, they wanted more. They set aside some time to seek the Lord. Church, as we read this passage, what we are seeing is it was an intentional move of the children of God. And it was a purposeful move. They assembled, they separated themselves, they confessed, they stood up, they read, they worshipped, and they cried out. Confession of sin is simply the admission of what we did. The agreement with God that our actions and words were wrong. When we confess our sins, we are admitting that we violated God's law. We admit we chose to do, say, or think something opposed to God's will. And we stand guilty before Him. Listen, church. Confession is a concerted effort. It's an intentional effort. It is an intelligent effort. It will flow out of a contrite heart. The brokenness of your heart will be seen in your demeanor. Wearing sackcloth, dust on your head. You read the word, which is the mirror, and it reveals your secret sins, your deceitful heart. You separate yourself from others, from the distraction of this world. You reach out to your accountability partner. You reach out to your pastor or the elders. And you cry out with a loud voice, admitting your mistakes. You spell everything out. Your sins, where you miss the mark. Your iniquities, where you, all your crooked ways. And your transgressions, where you have intentionally, deliberately, knowingly violated the precepts of God. Church, when we are confessing, we confess our sins to God first. That's what we see in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not only we confess our sins to God, we are to confess our sins to other believers. In the book of James, we see that therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So church, True confession can only happen when there is true conviction. 
The true conviction can only happen when the word of God is spoken to us. That's what we are learning in Nehemiah chapter 8 and these verses. So my appeal to us as a church is let us set aside some time as an individual, as a family, as a church, as a body, as a city, as even as a nation to cry out to the Lord because revival begins here, church. Revival begins here for you, for your family, for your church body, for your city, for your nation, even for the whole world. When you confess, it begins there with a repented heart. And we see in the, in the Old Testament where the Lord says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from, hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their lands. That's the promise that we are seeing. So it begs the question now, Pastor, what keeps us from being intentional and purposeful in taking time to remember? That's the question we would ask. Church, there are several factors that hinder or prevent us, us from confessing our sins, and we are going to look at that later on, probably another day, from this same, same chapter. But I want to just bring out three things that will really stop us from really confessing. Number one, we all know that, it's our pride. It's pride. Because pride rushes us into justify, explain, or blame shift instead of confessing and being forgiven. Pride. We should understand, we should know that God resists a prideful person. You know, the problem that we can't confess is because of the I factor that we have. I have figured things out. I am in control. I operate. I decide. I know it all. I have a great job. I earned it all. It's all about I, 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 me and myself. Church, this is exactly what Satan said, and we find that in the book of Isaiah. Satan said, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and I will be like the most high. I factor. Your pride will prevent you from confessing. Number two, your priorities will prevent you from confessing. I am too busy for the Lord. How many times have you heard this? Oh, it's my, my family time. It's my job. It's my kids. It's my vacation. It's my leisure. It's my, 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 my. But the Lord is very clear in saying, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things shall be given unto you. But you know what, church? When the calamity strikes us, and it will, all these priorities will change, isn't it? Of course, then we need Him. Then we need the Lord. Then we need the church. When we need the prayer group. When we need everyone. When we need every person who can pray for us. So our priorities can prevent us from confessing. Number three is our purpose in life. Understanding what our purpose is. My purpose in life for most people today, sadly, even among some believers, is to earn a name for myself. I want to leave a good legacy. I want to be known as rich and famous. I want, I want to be known as someone people look up to. I want to hold a prominent status in the society. 
This is the purpose why I want to live. This is the purpose of my life. But Piper says it well. The meaning of life is to know God and to enjoy God and to reflect some of the beauty of God as we know Him in Christ. Church, God created us for only one purpose. And it's clearly seen in the book of Isaiah 43 verses 21 and, and, and 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. God is telling you and I, I created you. There's only one purpose, is for my own glory. Verse number 7 says, These people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. That's why God created you. So if there is a true purpose of your life, the purpose of your life is to bring glory to Him, to enjoy Him, to give Him praise. If you truly understand the purpose of God, you will have short accounts with God. So church, my appeal to you is do not be so focused on making a living that you are not making a life. Let me repeat that. Do not be so focused on making a living that you are not making a life. You are not living the life God desires for you. So make time to cultivate the habit of slowing down and remembering the Lord. Make time to recount your sins where you have missed the mark. Recount your iniquities when you choose the crooked pathways. To recount your transgressions when you deliberately violated the boundaries. Now along with that, make time to reflect and meditate on who your God is today. This is an intentional exercise. It is a spiritual discipline, and that's exactly what we are seeing in the rest of the verses in chapter 9. After taking time to remember, now the children of Israel are reflecting or recognizing who their God is. Church, I want to show you a photograph now. A photograph of someone whose life was transformed. This is something that is a true story. And as you look at this man on the left and the right are the same man. And what you're seeing, how the gospel has transformed this person's life. I just received these pictures yesterday from our dear pastor from Sri Lanka. Now this picture is a picture of transformation. You know what, when we look at this, it looks like a third person for us. But what I want you to see, I want you to see yourself in this picture, please. Because spiritually speaking, you were someone like that person on the left before. You had the encounter with God. When you truly know that this transformation happened because of his intervention in your life, your life will truly change. If you truly understand the blessing that you have received, your life will change. We ought to be worshipping the one who caused the change in our lives. So in the following verses, we are going to see who caused this change in our lives. 
So what you're going to look at as verses 5 to 25, the second point that we are looking, first one is to remember and be thankful to who God was, and secondly, we are going to remember the character of God. Now, the rest of the verses is a long prayer. It is some like a historical psalms, it resembles that, but this prayer emphasizes repentance only. The prayer begins with a recognition of who God is. So in the next few verses, the children of Israel are identifying six characteristics of God. And I want you to look at this picture and who caused the change. And I told you, you were like him and now you are transformed. And I want you to understand who caused the change in your life. What would be your attitude towards the one who transformed you? So let's dive into verses 5 and 6. The first characteristics that we see is God's greatness, His greatness. Let me read this to you. And the Levites and then said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Bless, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made heaven. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Why don't we personalize this? What do we see from here? We see the greatness of God in these verses. In verse number 5, we see that God is eternal. The Lord your God forever and ever. And we see that is a unique God. You alone are the Lord. Verse number 6. In verse number 6, latter part, you have made heaven. He is the creator and the preserver of our lives. And on the last part of the verse, we see the host of heaven worships you. He is worthy of our worship. God is sovereign above all and His life comes from Him. So all praise goes to the Creator and not to the creation. Church, He is the one who knits us together in our mother's womb. He knows the number of our hairs on our head. He names every star. He created us for His glory. Do you know, church, that you are a masterpiece of God? If we truly know that you are a clay in the potter's hand... You will yield to the potter as he breaks you and molds you and melts you and makes you into another person. You will have absolute confidence in him. No matter what challenges you may face, no matter what's the, what the scars you may bear, no matter how broken your life is, when this potter see that the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, we see that in the book of Jeremiah. Church, this potter our God. In His greatness, He is able to form it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to Him. That's the first thing that we are seeing here, His greatness. Let's move on. Now as they go into verses 7 to 8, they are moving from the creation, they are acknowledging the Creator God to their God, to their father of faith, Abraham. Look at verse 7 and 8. What we are seeing here is the promises of God, of God who keeps His promises. That's the second characteristic they are seeing. 
You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of her of Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the, and the Gergeshites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. I want you to notice in these verses, there are several acts of grace in the life of Abraham. Look at this verse, please. First, God chose him. That's what you're seeing him. Then he changed his name. Abraham, Abraham means uh, high father, almighty father. His name was changed from Abraham to Abraham, a father of multitude. And next we see that God knew Abraham's heart. And lastly, we see that God used him, and he made a covenant with him. In verse 8, we see, you have performed your words. What does that mean? God always does what he says. He always keeps his promise. You can rely on his word. Because of the integrity of God's character, you, God is a righteous God. So the second characteristic that we're seeing here, not, the first one is God is God's greatness, and second one is His promises are true. I know, church, we love this, love to personalize this scripture, isn't it? For all the promises of God in Him are yes, and, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us, isn't it? Sometimes we take this passage and we, we apply it in inappropriate conditions and contexts and situations. The question that God asks us in this text is this. And Piper puts it beautifully here. Let me read this scripture again. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. For these promises to be yes and amen in Christ, here's a question that Piper posts. Are you living in the fullest enjoyment of God's yes to you? In Christ Jesus. Wow. Or oh, put it another way, he says this. Have you said yes to all of God's yes to you? Is there any of God's yes to you to which you are saying no, maybe, or not now? So church as a body, let, a, let our consecration to God be this. Lord God, I commit to forsake the no and the maybe and the not now of my unbelief. And I say yes to everything in your yes to me. So help me, God, to abide in you, in you alone. Church, we looked at two characteristics already. His promises and his greatness. And thirdly, as we look, go into verses 9 to 12, we are looking at his power. As the prayer is moving from creation to Abraham, now to Moses. It moves from the creation of the nation to its salvation. From God's grace in establishing a community and his power in redeeming them. What we are going to see is God's love for his people, to you and to me. His power to redeem them and to redeem us. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 now. As we read through this, we see his loving power. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. Now the story brought it back to Egypt. 
and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. As you read this passage, we see God's loving power was demonstrated as he answered their prayers. Look at that verse there. And he heard their cry. And secondly, we see that he showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. And you know what happened to Pharaoh? The second point, we look at verse number 10. He, he vanquished their enemies. That's his power. And the third thing that we say, he did it for his namesake. He made a name for himself. When some God's power is moved in our lives, others will see, this is because of your God. Verses 11 and 12, as we go into that. And you divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into, a, into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by a day with a cloudy pillar, pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. We are picking up two things from here. They went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. Church, what a fearful event that would have been for them. Imagine all of a sudden the, the sea is parting and you are asked to go in the middle of it. I don't know. I would freak out. But what we are seeing here is this God, by His power, He helped them overcome their fears. That's what He's doing to you and me. And not only that, look at this. Even in the, in the wilderness, He says they led them by day and by night. He guided their steps. He guides our steps. So these children are reflecting on their God who not only led their ancestors from Egypt, while they are reflecting on the past, they are also remembering. Remember this, they have just come out of captivity, a 70 years of captivity in Babylon. So what has His loving power done for you and for me, church? What has, what has it done to you and me? Paul writes it so beautifully. We studied that is when he did the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, you can make a note and you can, you can look at it at home later. But it reminds us our state while we were in bondage. Ephesians 2, chapter 12. In this verse, Paul reminds us of how bad the situation was on our side. We had five huge problems before we were redeemed. We were without Christ. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. We were without hope. We were without God. But God, I know we did a deep study on this. In His loving power, He redeemed us. He redeemed you. He redeemed me. He gave us new life in Christ. So we looked at already Four things here, three things, I'm sorry. His greatness, His promises, His loving power. And fourthly, in verse number 13, let's look at verse number 13 here. And you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. The God of the universe, the one who created, 
He spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws and good statutes and commandments. Church, now the prayer is moving to declare that this God, the omnipotent God, the omniscient God, the omnipresence God, the almighty God, the sovereign God, He is not a distant God. Unlike the pagan gods, we don't keep him in a statue, in a, in a, in a place, we call them a temple. He, he is not dead or silent. He came down and spoke with them. That's our God, church. Our God speaks to us. He met their spiritual needs of having a personal relationship with God. We speak to him and he hears us. He speaks to us and we hear him. He is a personal God. That's our God. He's a personal God. And fifthly, we move on to verse number 14. We're going to look at a few verses here. It talks about his provision. What this God of the universe provided for, his, for, for the ancestors. Now look at verse number 14. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You know that as you read the book, book of old, the, the Old Testament, God has given them a command, work for six days, and you have a day of rest on the day of Sabbath. So he provided their physical needs there. Verse number 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. What do we see here? He provided their material needs. Bread from heaven and water from a rock. Look at verse 21. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. What do they, rem what do they remember now? What, how are they recognizing the God? He gave them adequate clothing. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Look at verse 25. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods. He met all their needs. That's our God, church. Every one of us can vouch for that. We have been the recipients of His provision. We have food to eat. We have clothes to wear, roof above our heads, church to attend to, jobs to go to, and kids to study in the schools. Most importantly, church, the greatest blessing that we have is the freedom that we have to move around, to come to a sanctuary, to, to hear the Word of God, to carry a Bible, to read a Bible. Church, if you can stop for a moment from the busyness of your life, and as the hymn writer says, if you could count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. The Lord has provided for all our needs and can we echo with the songwriter? All I have needed, thy hands have provided. So, so church, so far, the children of God are recognizing who their God was and who He is. We found that they said He's, he's talk about His prominence or His greatness, His promises, which are yes and amen in Christ, His power to redeem us, from our bondage, his personality, how he becomes a personal God who speaks to us, and his provision, he meets all our needs. 
But he has not left us alone with that. The last quality that we find or characteristics that we find in verses 19 to 24 is his protection and his guidance. His protection and his guidance. Church, I began by quoting you the passage of scripture from 2 Timothy. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But this God of ours, he gives us guidance and protection. Yes, the Bible says, uh, and will all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yes, but this God is going to give us guidance and protection. Look at, look at verse number 19. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them day by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of the fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. What do we see from here? The guidance. He gave them the geographical direction, the path that they should take. Verse number 20. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them. God has not left us alone. He, we have the counselor who has been deposited in us on the day that we received him as our personal Lord and Savior who gives us spiritual insight. Verse number 22. Moreover, you gave them the kingdoms and nations. What do we take from that? He gave them military success. No weapon formed against them can prosper, church. No weapon formed against you can prosper. We may be living in the last days where we have the imposters and, and evil men may grow from worse to worse, but no weapon formed against us can prosper because he gives us military success. Verse 23, and not only that, you also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. He gave them numerical strength. That's what they are seeing here. You are not left alone. Verse 24. So the people went in and possessed the land. He gave them their dwelling. The people went in and possessed their land. Church, we could have spent more time in every one of these characteristics. We could have. But that's not the point. The point is for us to understand as the way, same way that these children of God who came out of the bondage from Babylon and as they came together and as they have gone through and they have rebuilt the wall, a fortified city, now Ezra comes and speaks the word of God and as the word of God is spoken to them, what do we see here? We see that they post in the midst of all the festivity, to remember. Remember the faithfulness of God. And not only to remember the faithfulness of God, they recognize who this God was to the ancestors. That is what I want us to take today. To pause and to remember the faithfulness of God in our lives and to know, acknowledge and understand and to recognize who this God is to us today. While we are living in the perilous time, the last days, the difficult days. So what should be our response? We should set aside time to remember as an individual. Do it as a family and confess your sins. Church, I want every home that is listening to this message, let tonight be the night that you gather as a family 
Go on your knees. Cry out to the Lord and, and repent of your sins. Sins that you have committed knowingly or unknowingly. Be on your knees and acknowledge who this God is to you. His prominence. The one who created you, the one who put you together in your mother's womb. His promises which are yes and amen. Are you saying yes to God, everything that God is telling you in your life? His power, the power in, by which He redeemed you and given you new life. His personality, He is not a God that we keep on an idol, a statue and worship. He is a true God, a personal God who wants to talk to us. And He has met all our needs more than what we want. But not only that, He is protecting us in this season. If this is your God, how would you respond, church? Why are you so downcast? Why do you complain? Shouldn't you be bubbling in joy? So as I conclude this, as the worship team comes, for spiritual restoration of or revival, we must first remember. What are the obstacles we looked at? Our pride, our priorities, and our purposes. But I want us to pause and recognize who our God is. First, His prominence. Secondly, His promises. Thirdly, His power. Fourthly, His personality. And uh, fifthly, His provision and His protection. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you for today's message. We thank you for the lesson that we learned from the children of Israel as they came back to begin a new life in that promised land. One more time. And as they come together and as they experience this, and we thank you that the word convicted them. The word caused them to pause in the midst of all the festivities to remember your faithfulness. And not only to remember what you had done, but to acknowledge and recognize who you are. And as we pause today to remember your faithfulness in our lives, we want, we want you to help us to put aside everything that causes an obstacle, our pride, our priorities, our purposes of life. We, let us help us to put it aside and to, and to remember you. And not only to remember you, God, help us to recognize who you are. We are living in the last days. We are facing obje- uh, persecution. But let us recognize your prominence. You are the one who put us together in our mother's womb. You are the creator God. And your promises are yes and amen. And help us to be do that. That is yes in your sight, O God. And knowing that your power, by your power you have redeemed us and given us new life. To know that you have not only given us new life, you are a God, a personal God who speaks to us daily. And not only that, you have provided all that we need. But most important, not only provided, that you give us that guidance and protection. So we pray in Jesus' name that as we do this, Master, we know that we will nothing but only joy that flows from our hearts. And we pray that we'll have that repented relationship with you. Help us to do it as individuals, as families, as a church. We ask all these in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.